0: It's good to be back here. I was here last February, and I didn't see any of you then because the lights were just as bright back then as they are now. Uh, but uh, I, I, I hear you out there, so it's, uh, it's good to be here again. This morning, I want to talk to you about what I think is the, one of the most important passages in Scripture. And the message is called the Divine Electrolux. Some of you may not know what an Electrolux is. It's a vacuum cleaner. And the passage is Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Now, I know you used the NIV here, and uh, I was a a consultant uh, for the TNIV, and I've also been a consultant for three other Bible translations. Uh, I don't want to dismiss any translation, but uh, frankly, none of them quite fit what I think is exactly what Paul is saying in this passage, and so I've provided my own translation, Uh, as heretical as that might sound, but uh, I am the uh, senior New Testament editor of the Net Bible, so uh, I I have some rights to deal with that translation as well, and I've worked on the ESV and even the New King James Bible and TNIV and others like that. Before I get into the message, though, I wanted to mention a couple of things. I wanted to pick up on what uh, uh, was mentioned earlier about Kiln's College tomorrow and the registration for the classes Mike uh, Saba picked me up from the airport yesterday. We went out to dinner, and we sat around in his porch and talked about archaeology and his recent uh, trip to Greece. Uh, he really gets into this stuff. And uh, as we're sitting there just chatting about things for several hours, I just blurted out, I said, Mike, you must be some phenomenal teacher. And it occurred to me, that if the other teachers are half as good as he is, then the kind of education you could get at Kilns would really be exciting. And I, I like the philosophy, it's such a small school, they, they, they don't have a big boat that takes forever to steer and move in a different direction. They really are very, very innovative. I think it would be a very stimulating time for you. So I want to encourage you to think about furthering your education just so you can know more about how Christians relate to the, are to relate to the world and to each other and to God. Mike also mentioned to me that uh, uh, one of these days when I come to Ben that I could bring uh, one of my boys. We have four sons. They're all adults. And uh, I don't don't know that I've told you much about them, Mike, but uh, maybe you'll change your mind when I tell you this. Uh, My wife and I have been married for 36 years. Uh, Wallace, I'm Scottish. Her maiden name was Patricia Catherine O'Brien. Uh, and so you can see that we've had a, an interesting marriage, kind of taming of the shrew, uh, but uh, and uh, it's, it's always lively in our house. Well, we have four sons, and as of last September, one granddaughter, but my wife and I decided we were going to be thoroughly biblical and very spiritual, very godly when we named our kids, and so we, we went the, the whole nine yards, every one of them is named after a character in the, in the Bible. Not just that, I mean, that makes it spiritual right there, right? Just, it's automatic. But not only that, but they're all named after characters in one book of the Bible. Not just that, but one chapter in one book. The book of Revelation, chapter 6. Our sons are named after the four horsemen of the apocalypse. (laughs) Death, pestilence, famine, and disease. And Mike, you had mentioned that I could bring my oldest son. Well, death does follow me sometimes, but... Um, I don't know if you really want them to come here, so famine, that's, that's not a big deal. I could use some of that, but nevertheless, um, great kids, fun, fun to have boys. Well, I gotta, I'm going to give you an unnatural segue. This has nothing to do with anything except, uh, just to mention this, the best football game I saw this entire year was last weekend. And um, it, I won't mention that it's the only football game I saw. But uh, I'm a four-generation California, grew up in Newport Beach, and even though I live in the south, in Dallas, that's, that's not home to me. The surf sucks in Dallas. But um, nevertheless, I'm, I'm very much of a West Coaster in my, uh, my love and my attitude, and we want my wife and I actually want to retire on the Oregon coast. Um, I thought it was a great game, and I thought the coach, uh, uh, Chip Kelly, was just absolutely in- innovative how he was doing things. It was really, really a very exciting game. So you guys should be very proud of how uh, the Ducks did in that. They got robbed at the end, but still. All right. You're going to need to pay very careful attention to this message to understand what I'm talking about when we talk about the divine electrolux. It's kind of a riddle. In the ancient world, we have at least 15,000 letters correspondences that have come down to us that we still have in existence today, over 15,000 letters. And among those, Romans stands head and shoulders above all the rest as being the most important and the most influential letter from the ancient Greco-Roman world. John Calvin, the famous reformer, prefaced his commentary on Romans with this statement, if we have gained a true understanding of this epistle, we have an open door to all the most profound treasures of scripture. Why is Romans so important? A century ago, two British scholars by the name of Sandy and Headlam wrote one of the best commentaries on Romans at the time, and they, they made this comment. If it's a historical fact that the spiritual revivals of Christendom have almost always been associated with a closer study of the Bible. This would be true in an eminent degree of the epistle to the Romans. Think about that. If you want revival, Romans has got to be at the core of it. This is still true today. One might be tempted to say that without Romans, there's no true revival. It's that important. It's been the cornerstone both of revivals and reformations, of conversions and callings. It's been that which has marked men and started movements. St. Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Wesley, Bart, all were never cured from being infected with Romans. Luther went so far as to say that this epistle is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word, heart by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. What is it about this letter that makes it so vital, so important for the Christian faith? In a word, salvation this letter is the clearest presentation of the gospel in the entire new testament it tells us that god moved heaven and earth to bring us that salvation in a way that you and i are never for all of eternity going to fully other fully understand the godhead the trinity was ripped apart when jesus was nailed to the cross God turned his back on Jesus Christ and poured out all the wrath of hell on his own son as he suffered one of the most horrific torture devices ever concocted by man. Why would God do this to his own son? It's because he loves you and me. The Bible says without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin. And Paul's letter to the Romans tells us this in no uncertain terms. And the heart of this great epistle is Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. I teach Romans at Dallas Seminary every year. And my students have an ongoing bet about how far into the letter we're actually going to get. The first time I taught it, I think uh, the, the, the bet was I'd get up to chapter 5. And uh, when I found out about the bet, I said, You know, guys, once we get past 326, it's all downhill from there. So if I can get that far, I'm doing really well. But uh, I spend about two and a half class periods on this one paragraph, two and a half 75-minute class periods on this one paragraph in the summary. It's that important. It stands out as one of the most important passages in the entire Bible. Leon Morris, a Cambridge scholar who was an Australian, called Romans 3:21 through 26 possibly the single most important paragraph ever written. That's pretty high praise. I I hope you're getting the idea that, gee, this is not just uh, Chronicle's lists of uh, uh, genealogies. This is kind of pretty substantive stuff for us. Now, before we get into this text, I need to warn you. This is a rich passage, theologically. And I, I really hope that you got some coffee today. I think this is a casual enough church. If you all want to get up right now and go get coffee, that's fine with me. Well in turn anyway, but anyway, you're, you're going to need it. I, I want you to track with me as we track with Paul. I'm going to try to explain things as simply as I can, but you really, you really can't drift. Put away your iPhones, turn off your cell phones, don't text your friends, don't be checking your email, don't dra- daydream about the football game today or the one that got away last weekend. The Bible says that it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it's the glory of kings to dig it out. And I want us all to be kings this morning as we wrestle with this great passage from Paul's letter to the Romans. Well, in the first three chapters of Romans, Paul rails against humanity. He describes heaven's view of our condition. All of us, he says, are totally depraved sinners who have zero chance of gaining eternal life on our own merits. That's the bad news. Well, here's the problem. God is holy. God is perfect absolutely holy, not relatively holy, absolutely perfect. And you and I are anything but. No one does good, not even one, Paul says. From God's perspective, there's not one human being that does any good thing. No one seeks out God, not even one. All of us were spiritually dead because of sin. That's what he tells us in Ephesians chapter 2. This means that we were not responsive to anything outside the realm of sin. That's the devastating reality of our spiritual condition before God. There's an old Chinese proverb that says there are two good men. One is dead and the other is not yet born. So not real optimistic about the goodness of people. Because we're utterly sinful and because God is utterly holy, what chance do you and I have of gaining eternal life? What chance do we ever have to stand in God's presence without being condemned, without being consumed? Well, the answer to this question is at the heart of Romans, and it's found in this paragraph, 3, 21 through 26. And here Paul speaks in crystal clear terms about our wonderful salvation. And yet, and this is really, really important, salvation is not the driving force of this letter. As much as we may revere the Apostle Paul today, in his own time he was constantly defending himself and his gospel. And as important as our salvation was to Paul, and you'll see it's exceedingly important, To Paul. He valued the honor and the holiness of God even more. For Paul, vindicating God's righteousness was every bit as important as demonstrating his grace, especially because his accusers had assumed that Paul had capitulated on the former in order to promote the latter. In this passage, God's righteousness is seen in every verse. Uh, Verse 21, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Verse 22, namely, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. 23, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. That doesn't mention God's righteousness by name, but it's the same general idea. It's God's presence. How do we stand in God's presence unless... unless, uh, were righteous ourselves verse 24 being freely justified or literally being freely declared righteous by his grace verse 25 whom God publicly displayed at his death to do what to demonstrate his righteousness and then verse 26 this was also to demonstrate his righteousness in the present time so that he would be just or righteous even while justifying or declaring righteous the one who lives because of Jesus faithfulness now, just in case you haven't noticed, this translation is in your uh, bulletin. You can look at it, and there's even a little outline, outline notes that say introduction. It's very creative outline. It says verse 21, verse 22, goes right through verse 26. So at least you can follow along pretty well. But every one of those verses implicitly or explicitly speaks of God's righteousness. That's the driving force for Paul, to vindicate God's holiness and his righteousness. The vindication of God's character permeates the section. Paul goes to great lengths to make clear, clear that his gospel in no way undermines Paul, God's holiness, nor does it wink at sin. This is his response to certain Jewish Christians who thought that Paul was soft on sin. And basically they thought, hey, Paul, you know, you're letting these Gentiles get in without following the food laws, without getting circumcised. You, you've just got a, a social agenda where you have changed the gospel And this is absolutely wrong. You've made it so that anybody can get in without uh, really becoming holy. And Paul's response is, you want holiness? Let me talk to you about holiness. You and I don't even come close to measuring up. There's only one way we can get access to God, and that's through Christ's holiness. So that's his response to these Jews. And and he, he turns the tables on his accusers. He says that his gospel cannot stand unless God is holy and righteous and true. Not only this, and this is really important for all of us to grasp because we don't always catch it. The cross is not a lowering of God's righteous standard. There's no cheap grace in the gospel. It was infinitely costly to God. Well, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed even though it is witnessed by the law and the prophets. We're going to go through some of the key phrases in these verses because I think this is such a rich passage it's important for us to just think through exactly what Paul is telling us and my prayer for you today is that this is gonna minister to you in some deep ways that you didn't expect because this is a message that every single Christian throughout their whole life needs to hear really on a daily basis Paul begins but now this is a decisive break in time the cross is the central point in all of human history as far as Paul was concerned. Everything up to the moment of Christ's death pointed to it. Everything after that moment points back to it. And with the resurrection, it's the most significant event in all of history. Everything changes in God's dealings with humanity with the coming of the cross. Apart from the law, this righteousness of God was not accomplished by the law. Paul's saying it wasn't accomplished by the Old Testament law, by the Mosaic law. Obedience to the law could not save because no one could obey it perfectly. And later in Romans 7, Paul's going to talk about the law, and he's going to say the law is perfect and holy and righteous, but it's impotent. It can't do anything for us. If you will, the law is like a sterile spoon. And you take our lives, and it's as if you have this this glass, and you scoop it up into the mud outside, and then you let it just sit on the windowsill for a few days. All the sediment drops down to the bottom. It looks like you've got a clear, clear water in there. The law comes along. The spoon comes along and just stirs it up. Does it make our lives dirty? No. It reveals the dirt that really is there, but can it get rid of it. No. The law is perfect and holy and righteous, but it's impotent. And Paul says, we have a righteousness now that comes apart from the law and we're no longer under the Old Testament law. The righteousness of God, he says, has, has come. This is a righteousness which comes from God. The reformers called this an alien righteousness. It's one that's not inherently our own. It's an imputed righteousness is another term they use. It's a righteousness that comes from God which cannot be obtained through the law. Because God is holy and because you and I are not, we must be clothed with his righteousness if we're to stand in his presence, his righteousness has to be imputed to us. And this righteousness has been revealed. This means that it has now come at last. And then Paul adds, even though it's witnessed by the law and the prophets, this apart from the law righteousness of God is nevertheless attested by the law. The, the law and the prophets spoke about this. Moses spoke about the coming Messiah. There, Jeremiah spoke about the new covenant. God's righteousness is now disclosed in the cross, and it's accessible through the cross, but this righteousness is not foreign to the Old Testament, even though it was inaccessible through the law. Paul is concerned that his readers understand that he's not preaching a gospel that contradicts the Old Testament. His gospel fulfills it. It does not destroy it. Verse 22, he adds, namely, the righteousness of God. Now he's defining this righteousness that comes through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction." And here he defines it by saying it comes through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Now, most modern translations here have through faith in Jesus Christ, and this is one of the two key places where I would have disagreements with most translations. The Net Bible has the faithfulness of Jesus Christ instead of faith in Jesus Christ. Translations reflect biblical scholarship, And some of the latest scholarship has argued that this phrase in Greek should be translated through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ instead of through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, at bottom, both sides would regard the object of our faith to be Christ. But those who consider the faithfulness of Christ as the meaning uh, also see something else going on in this text here. The focus is on what Christ accomplished more than on what you and I must do to be saved. And I think the passage is better translated as the faithfulness of Christ rather than faith in Christ. I'll give you three reasons why. First of all, the Greek word used here can mean faith or faithfulness. In Galatians 5.22, Paul speaks about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Faithfulness. It's the same word that is used here in Romans 3.22, and there it's translated faithfulness. But more relevantly is in this very chapter, Paul speaks of the faithfulness of God using the same word. Romans 3.3, 3, what then? If some did not believe, does their unbelief nullify the faithfulness of God? He's not saying does their unbelief nullify faith in God, but the faithfulness of God. Again, it's the same word that's used here. And then the third thing is this. In this very verse, if this meant faith in Christ, then you have redundancy in this verse because the very next clause says for those who believe well if this phrase means faith in christ why would paul have to add for those who believe obviously faith in christ is for those who believe but if the faithfulness of christ is applied to those who believe then they're making two different statements taking it as faithfulness of christ shows that god's righteousness is not soft on sin and again that's the whole image of what this context is about he's vindicating god's righteousness Jesus Christ had to be perfectly faithful to the Old Testament law. He had to obey the law completely because his faithfulness had to cover believers' unfaithfulness. And basically, I understand verse 2 to be saying this. The righteousness of God has become available because of Christ's faithfulness to the Old Testament law. He's the perfect Passover lamb who died in our place. And Paul even uses that imagery in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 when he speaks of Christ, our Passover lamb. The Lord fulfilled the law in its moral precepts and its prophecies, all that the law looked forward to. Because the object of our faith was perfectly faithful to God, both in his life and his death, he's worthy of our faith. And because he was faithful, our faith in him, saves us. Paul adds, for all who believe. The idea is that those who believe in Christ have the faithfulness of Christ applied to their account. But our faith is only as good as the object of that faith. And since Christ is faithful, he's worthy of our faith. Now, a major implication that I think evangelicals often miss is that it's not so much how much you believe that gets you saved, but whom you believe. Let me illustrate this with, um, it's a made-up illustration, but you'll get the point. There's two men standing at a cliff, and across the cliff is a great chasm that goes a couple hundred feet. There's two bridges that go from one cliff to the other. It's a sheer drop-off, six, seven hundred feet drop-off. One bridge is a superhighway. You could load it up with Mack trucks all day long. It's going to stand forever, no problem. One man is standing in front of that bridge. The other bridge is an old rickety bridge held together by rope that's been there for 30, 40 years and some old uh, boards with half of them missing. And it looks like termites are holding hands to keep the thing up. So you've got these two men ready to cross the bridge. The one man standing in front of the superhighway is not real sure that bridge is going to hold him and carry him across. The other man is absolutely confident his bridge will do it. So the confident man goes out on that first bridge and within a few steps the first board breaks, he plunges to his death. It didn't matter how much faith he had, if that object wasn't good enough, it's not going to get him across the, the, uh, the chasm. The other man has enough faith to get on the bridge But he's extremely tentative. He crawls the 200 feet across that chasm on the superhighway, trying not to make any kind of uh, sudden movements because he's just not sure that it's going to hold his weight. But he has enough faith to get on the bridge. He's the one who gets saved. Now, there are lots of Christians who barely have enough faith in Christ to get them saved. Their lives right now are not nearly as enjoyable, not nearly as full as they could be, because their faith is not nearly as strong as it should be. But it's in Christ, and that's far more important than how much faith they have. And so it's not faith in faith that saves us. It's faith in Christ that saves us, and that's really the key that we need to keep in mind. Now, I used this illustration years ago when I was talking to some kids at church. It was a bunch of... Uh, little boys 8 to 10 years old that were going camping uh, with their dads and uh, gave this illustration and shared it with them and said I want you to make sure you really put your faith in Jesus Christ and so then we decided to go on a little hiking trail and came across this wooden rickety bridge over a little area of water and so all these boys are looking at me and they they didn't understand the message very well but they said is this the, the powerful bridge the one we can have faith in or is this the old rickety bridge? I go, Lord, you got a sense of humor. This is. (laughs) So I said, Men, this is the strong bridge. And I marched right out, and I was grateful it held. So, anyway. (laughs) For there's no distinction. The rules are the same for all of us. We're all sinners, Jews and Gentiles all of us and we all gain access to God's presence only through faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if you were born in a Christian home or if you've lived a life devoted to doing good for others. There's not one work that you can do, not no status you can have that can get you even one iota closer to heaven. And the reason is because God is a holy God and he can't stand even the tiniest of sins in his presence. The only way that we can gain eternal life is if Christ's faithfulness is applied to us. And the only way that that happens is if we put our faith in him. It's not putting 99% of our faith in him and 1% of our faith in us. It's 100% of our faith, even as weak as it may be, but the object of faith is the key. Now, verse 23 is one of these verses that we all quote, and yet we don't read it in its context. For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. The question here is, who are the all who have sinned? Now, theologically, you could certainly argue that all people are sinners. Paul, in fact, says that in Romans 3, verses 9 through 20. He establishes in no uncertain terms that everybody on the planet is a sinner. But is that what this verse means? I don't think so. Look at what he just said in verse 22, where he speaks of the all there, all who believe. The same all are almost surely in view in verse 23 as well. And you're you're going to see why this is so important in just a few minutes. There's two verbs that describe our state in verse 23. All have sinned, which is a past tense. For those of you who know Greek, it's an aorist tense. And all fall, fall short, a present tense. The first verb, have sinned, is a summary tense. Paul is saying that our lives can be summed up in one word, sin. And that's how God views us. Our lives are one big blob of sin. But then fall short is a a verb that means to fail to reach or to completely lack. And it's a present tense. This is still true of us. In John chapter 2, verse 3, the the verb is used of the wine that had run out. Uh, This is the wedding in Cana where Jesus, and at this point he has four disciples, all of them fishermen, uh, joining him for this uh, wedding feast. And in the Greek, it looks as if Jesus is invited to the wedding, and these, these disciples kind of tag along. And then in verse 3, it says, the wine ran out. The, the wine failed to reach what it was supposed to do. It, there was not a, a drop left of it. It was completely gone. And then Jesus' mother comes and speaks to him and says, look, the wine ran out. What are you going to do about it? Why did she speak that way to him? Uh, I, you'll pardon my uh, sacrilegious imagination here, but his disciples are fishermen. I mean, what do fishermen do? They just drink, right? All day long. And so I've got to think, man, these guys guzzle all this stuff, and she was a little bit ticked at him and said, go down to the local store and get some more stuff. And uh, so the wine had run out. And by the way, this, this is free. It's not going to be on the test. Don't worry about it. But um, the amount of wine that Jesus makes on that day is between 120 and 180 gallons. That was was quite a wedding present. Well, um, back to Romans 3.23. Same verb is used here where this time we run out. We fall short of the glory of God, but it's a present tense. It's happening now. It indicates that although all believers have sinned, we still fail to reach God through our own righteousness. That is, believers, not just non-Christians, are still totally depraved sinners. You and I continue to fall short of God's glory in our own lives. All believers have sinned, Paul says, and all believers still continue to fall short. Now, when someone puts his faith in Jesus Christ, he does not become perfect. He's still a sinner. And sin still affects every single part of our being. It affects our thoughts, our feelings, and our actions. And it will do so until our dying day. And what do we fall short of? The glory of God. In this context, this means God's presence. There's there's obviously a strong hint of God's holiness here. We fall short of this, and we can't stand in God's presence because we're not at all holy. Paul uses the glory of God again in Romans 5.2, where he says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which is to be in heaven with him in the future. What Adam had and then lost was the glory of God, and this is restored in Christ. Well, Paul here sets up a significant tension Those who believe in Christ are those who have sinned and who still fall short of the glory of God. How then can we be saved? Well, the the apostle just loves to mess with our minds, and he's going to do that right up until he gets to verse 24. And here we read, While being freely justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. James Edwards, in his excellent commentary on Romans, sums up the significance of this text this way. In all scripture, there's probably no verse which captures the essence of Christianity better than this one. Here's the heart of the gospel, the mighty nevertheless, the momentous divine reversal. Everything in verse 23 was due to humanity. Everything in verse 24 depends on God. Romans 3.24 starts off with a participle in Greek and I'm not going to give you too much of a grammar lesson but you need to get this much. It's not a new sentence but it's rather a subordinate clause to the preceding. Many translations start a brand new sentence in verse 24 but it really is, is still subordinate to the preceding. It means while being justified. It doesn't say they are justified. We should translate while being justified. What it's doing, what this is telling us is that This happens while something else is going on. And what is that something else? It's the present tense in verse 23. All have sinned and are continually falling short of God's glory while being declared righteous. You see the tension? We are continually falling short of God's glory while on this level God is declaring us absolutely perfect, holy, and righteous. Two things happening at once. Well, The implication is this, that those who are justified freely are the all of verse 23. If the all of verse 23 were all sinners, that is not just Christians, but all sinners, then everyone would be justified. All people have sinned while being freely justified. That means everybody gets saved. Everyone would get saved if that's what the text meant. But it it obviously doesn't mean that because salvation would then be universal regardless of what one believes. And the New Testament is very clear that unless we put our faith in Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. It stands in a direct contradiction to the testimony of the New Testament. Peter said, there's no other name under heaven by which people can be saved. And more concisely, Paul says in verse 22, the righteousness of God comes to all who believe. When Paul prays for his fellow Jews in Romans 9, he wishes that he could be sent to hell if that would save but one of them. Have you ever noticed that? Romans 9.3 says this, for I could wish, or I could pray as another translation, that I myself were accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. What Paul is saying there is, if it were possible, I would go to hell if just one fellow Jew would get saved because of my death. That's how much he loved his own people. And it also shows us how necessary it is to put our faith in Christ. If that kind of a thing is what's essential, then obviously just, not everybody just gets saved. We have to put our faith in Christ. Well, why would he even contemplate this one if, if everyone would get saved? Why do we send out missionaries if everyone is going to be saved? Why do we care what people believe if faith in faith is what saves you? If I get on a bus that's heading towards San Francisco and I sincerely believe with all my heart that it's going to Denver. No no amount of faith is gonna change my destination. Faith in faith is worthless. Sincerity itself is worthless. It's faith in Christ that saves us. Well, what does it mean to be justified? Roman Catholics and Protestants are divided over this issue. Catholicism regards justification to mean imparted righteousness, that is God infuses his righteousness into us and changes our character on the spot or at least begins to change our character well Protestants take this to mean imputed righteousness that it's a legal declaration about us which is true of our status but not yet of our state and the difference is important if righteousness is imparted then God makes us righteous if it's imputed then God declares us to be righteous if it's imparted then there's no assurance of salvation because God does not make us entirely righteous immediately. If it's imputed, there is indeed assurance of salvation because the legal declaration of our righteousness is the divine statement about our status, not about our practice. So that's, that was dense theologically to follow, wasn't it? Well, just hang on, it gets worse. So... To justify here, I think, must mean to declare righteous, and here's why. The all who believe, in verse 22, are also the all who have sinned and continue to fall short of the glory of God. And those who fall short are also those who are justified while they are falling short. This can only mean that God declares us righteous before him. Our continual falling short of God's glory means that he has not made us righteous. Not yet. He will. But it starts with this legal declaration. But he can declare us righteous even while we are still falling short. Anything that speaks of imperfect obedience, or hints that we can even add one iota to the finished work of Christ, mitigates Paul's argument for the only way that God can declare the ungodly to be righteous is that there must be a final, alien, perfect substitute for our sins. And Paul makes this statement. catch it in verse 24. I think you'll see it when we get to the last key word here. While being freely justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Just in case we don't get Paul's point immediately when he says being freely justified, he clarifies it. We are justified freely by his grace, which comes through the redemption that is in Christ. Freely and by his grace tell us that God is not paying us back for our goodness, but He's giving you and me a gift that we don't deserve. And that gift is the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now here's the illustration that that I think is going to help you catch what this is about. Redemption is a word that comes from the slave market. When a person was set free, he was redeemed from his slavery. This was done by a purchase, which in this passage is Christ's sacrifice. And here's the point: if I set a slave free, I don't immediately change his character, but I do immediately change his status. If you've ever seen the movie uh, Trading Places with Dan Aykroyd and who's the other guy? What, what's that? Yeah, Eddie Murphy. Right. So sorry, brain fart. So, um, these guys trade places. Eddie Murphy goes to live in Aykroyd's house. His status has changed, and yet he's trying to steal things and all this. His character hasn't changed yet, but his status has changed. That's the picture that Paul paints here. And after a while, he gets used to the new status and realizes, and his character grows into that status, if you will. It's not the best illustration, but this whole business about redemption is. When you set somebody free, you change his status. Whether his character is there yet or not is irrelevant. It will be in time. But the basis is not his character changing. The basis of his redemption is that his status has changed. Further, Paul has just gone to great lengths to show that we're sinners who simply cannot please God by our own efforts. If all of our righteousness, as Isaiah says, is as filthy rags... And how can anyone add to the work of Christ on the cross? Can a candle shed light on the sun? I think this is one of the most precious truths in all of scripture. When we're saved, God first and foremost changes our status. He looks at the shed blood of Christ and he regards his death as the perfect work, the perfect sacrifice that covered all of our sins, past, present, and future. We're justified, to use Paul's language, even while we are sinners, even while we are continually falling short of God's glory. In other words, our salvation does not depend on our works. There's no work that you can do to get yourself saved, no work that we can do to keep ourselves saved, not one. We're declared righteous before God, our judge, because Christ has paid the price for our sin. Now, I've said this to you already a dozen different ways, and I am just hoping and praying as I was praying last night and praying this morning that this will sink in because some of you I know have struggled with, how can I know that God has really accepted me? I'm such a sinner. I mean, I know stuff I've done in my past. Does God know that? Well, yeah, he's omniscient. Can I really embrace the fact that I can have full acceptance by God as long as you think it's trying to hide your past from him or from others or it's going to be based on any of your righteousness, then you can't. But if we come to fully embrace the fact that we have redemption in Christ himself, then and only then can we have that full assurance of acceptance by God. And Paul adds, this redemption is in Christ Jesus. The whole reason that God does not condemn us is because we are in Christ In chapter 8, verse 1, he's going to say this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, period. We come before God as our judge. And in the existential crisis that each of us has, we recognize our sinfulness and we put our trust in Christ. The Lord is both our advocate and he's the one who redeemed us with his own blood. And then God, the judge, pronounces the judgment, not guilty. When the trial's finished, he takes off his judge's robes and then he adopts us into his own family. He says, don't call me judge anymore, now call me father. We become his because we're in Christ. Verse 25, whom God publicly displayed at his death as the mercy seat, accessible through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because God in his forbearance had passed over the sins previously committed why was Christ as the mercy seat publicly displayed you all know the mercy seat that was in the Holy of Holies and the high priest once a year came to God with the blood of the atonement sacrifice on the day of atonement and there's old rabbinic um, lore that suggests that they actually tied a rope around his waist so that if he did anything wrong inside of the Holy of Holies and might have gotten struck down by God there's no one who can go in, they never had janitors go in and clean up the Holy of Holies you know and so they would have to pull the body out but um, here you have the mercy seat publicly displayed not just the one priest representing all the people but all of the people have access to the mercy seat this imagery tells us what the gospels say The temple curtain was torn from top to bottom, revealing that access to God is now available to all at the moment of Christ's death. And that temple curtain was 15 feet tall, several inches thick. Well, once a year, the high priest would go into the temple on the Day of Atonement and he'd offer sacrifices. Only the high priest would thus ever be in the presence of God. And the place where he would meet God would be the mercy seat. With the death of Christ, all of this changed. The temple curtain was torn from top to bottom at the moment when Jesus died on the cross. His death opened up the holy of holies to all of us. And that's why Peter calls you and me priests. And why the reformers uh, spoke of the priesthood of the believer. We don't need to go through a priest to gain access to God. We are priests. We go directly to him. Every Christian is a believer priest because we no longer need any intermediaries between us and God. Well, Jesus here is called a mercy seat. Now, most translations have he's as a propitiation or an atoning sacrifice. But it's the same word that's found in Hebrews 9.5 where it says, Above the ark were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Now, a doctoral student at Cambridge University worked on his PhD for 12 years on what this word meant in Greek. Bit of a slow starter. That was his doctoral dissertation. He did exhaustive research, and he came to the firm conclusion fairly recently that this must mean mercy seat rather than atoning sacrifice. One of the great joys of working on the Net Bible was that this was the first Bible ever beta-tested on the Internet, and we'd put out preliminary translations on the Internet for the world to see. We got well over 100,000 comments on various aspects of the translation, and as we went through it, we had here propitiation. And this doctoral student wrote to us and he said, I just got my dissertation uh, finished. Would you like to take a look at it? We examined it and we were convinced by the argument. So we changed it to mercy seat. Well, the language obviously is metaphorical, but it moves in one direction. Christ is, of course, not the literal mercy seat, but he does represent it. And the mercy seat was where man met God once a year on the Day of Atonement. In Christ, you and I all have that free access to God. And since all of us come to the mercy seat directly, there's no longer any need for priests. Isn't that great news? This is just, it's just unbelievable, the imagery here and the, the spiritual realities that Paul is addressing. Well, this was to demonstrate his righteousness. Paul is still concerned about God's righteousness throughout this whole section. Here he's indicating that the death of Christ is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament sacrificial system was ultimately pointing to. He's the perfect sacrifice that the Day of Atonement looked forward to. The Old Testament sacrifices catch this, could not really pay for any sins at all. Not one of the Old Testament sacrifices ever paid for a sin. All they could do was point to the one who would. Here's what the author to the Hebrews says. The law possesses a shadow of the good things to come, but it does not possess the reality itself and is therefore completely unable by the same sacrifices offered continually year after year to perfect those who come to worship because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins here's a way for us to think about this it's an inelegant picture but this is the reason for the title of this message the Old Testament sacrifices were like a broom and year after year for centuries they would sweep the dirt under the carpet they couldn't get rid of it they did not take away the dirt of our lives but they could cover it it's the idea of atonement the cross of Christ is like a vacuum cleaner it comes along and sucks all that dirt up permanently. It's an Electrolux, if you will. Inelegant picture, but I hope you get the the idea. This is how God could pass over the sins previously committed, which is what Paul is saying. He passed over the sins by just hiding them under the rug, only by looking forward to the actual payment for sins that his son would make. Now, in the Old Testament, these sins were overlooked. What, What does it mean to say they're overlooked? The Old Testament sacrificial system itself was an overlooking of sins because it never finally and completely dealt with sin. God allowed an imperfect vehicle, a symbol really, to be the means by which sins were swept under the carpet. But as the author of Hebrews argues, animal sacrifices were but a shadow of realities that would be revealed later. It's in fact only in the cross where God fully satisfies his own righteous anger against sin. He poured out all of the wrath and anger that everyone in the world deserves on his son in those six hours on the cross. That's a demonstration of his righteousness. We must never think that the cross is a lowering of God's standards. Rather, it establishes his holiness like nothing in the sacrificial system ever could. Well, finally, we come to verse 26. This was also to demonstrate his righteousness in the present time so that he would be just even while declaring righteous the one who lives because of Jesus' faithfulness. To demonstrate his righteousness. Notice the repetition. Verse 25 says that the death of Christ in the past was to demonstrate God's righteousness. Paul reiterates this phrase in verse 26 and he says that the death of Christ also demonstrated God's righteousness at the present time. Well, how could it do both? Well, unlike the sacrifices of the Old Testament, which had to be repeated over and over and over again for centuries, Christ's death is never to be repeated. It was once for all. It was a permanent payment for sins. His death covers our sins past, present, and future. Every one of us has skeletons in our closet things in our past that we wish we'd never done. If you're over 25 years old, I'm pretty sure you've done some pretty terrible things in your life. When are you going to stop beating yourself up over it? When will you realize that the omniscient God knows all and that the other shoe is not going to drop, that in Christ he has forgiven you? for all of that crap? When will you stop feeling guilty over what God has forgiven you? We add guilt to ourselves when Christ has paid for that, and frankly, that in itself is blasphemy. Not the kind that's gonna send us to hell, but it's to say, you know, Lord, you paid for 99% of my sins, but this 1%, I'm still hanging on to that because I wanna have a pity party, and I wanna feel bad about how I messed my life up. Let's get over this. These things can haunt us and paralyze us. In Romans 8, Paul says, if God is for you, who can be against you? God is not the one who's holding our feet to the fire like this. He's not the one who's reminding us of our past. We can't relive it. But what you and I can do is embrace God's forgiveness. Jesus Christ has paid for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And until you and I really believe that, we will never be free Never be free to be ourselves. We'll never be free to live life to the fullest, free to serve the Lord. Paul says, so that. This introduces the purpose in Greek. He tells us that one of the reasons why Christ died, and it's a reason that really should surprise us. He says, so that he would be just. Now, I would expect Paul to say, God demonstrated his righteousness to save sinners. But instead, Paul says that God did this to show that he was just or righteous. Of course, God sent his son to save sinners. We know this. Less than two chapters later, in Romans 5.8, Paul's going to say, God commends his own love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But here, he's concerned, as we've said all along, to vindicate God's righteousness. And this is exactly what the cross of Christ did it showed that God was not soft on sin because he poured his wrath out on his son, wrath that you and I deserved. And he did this because we simply can't pay the price for our own sins. Not one of us has enough in our moral bankroll to pay off this debt. It's too huge. And God did it because he loves us with an infinite love in which he wants to adopt us as his own children so that we can have eternal life with him. But to do this because he's a holy God, his own perfect, holy, and innocent son had to die in our place. Then Paul adds, even while justifying. This means even while declaring righteous. Christ's death is so final, and it so completely satisfies all of God's wrath against all of humanity, that Paul can now declare that God is just even while justifying us. In this final clause of the passage, Paul turns everything on its head. The death of Jesus Christ didn't just show us the way to God. No, it infinitely did more than that. It is the way to God. And it is precisely because it upholds God's perfect standard of holiness while simultaneously bringing us life. And then he ends by saying the one who lives because of Jesus' faithfulness. Normally, this final phrase is translated the one who has faith in Jesus. It's the same Greek construction that we saw in verse 22. And whether it means the one who lives because of Jesus' faithfulness or the one who has faith in Jesus, the point either way is this, that God's righteousness is intact even while he accepts sinners into his presence. We see here the principle that all the Old Testament sacrifices point to and that Jesus fulfills. Death of an innocent victim is absolutely required as a substitute if sinners are to have life with God. In other words, there's no life without death. And all the Old Testament sacrifices only pointed to Christ. With his death comes the final sacrifice. There can be no more because he fulfilled them all. Well, let me conclude with five principles that I think would be helpful for us to think about from this passage. First of all, Very important principle. God is not angry with his children. He's not ticked at us. The payment for our sins has been made once for all in the death of his son. And God is 100% satisfied with that payment. There's absolutely nothing that we can do to add to our salvation. Nothing we can do to make God love us more. Until you and I really believe that, we will be of little use to him. May he grant us the grace to quit playing games with him, of trying to impress him or of trying to hide our sins from him. Secondly, it's not faith alone that saves us, but it's faith alone in Christ alone. Let us never forget that it's in Christ alone. Strong, sincere faith is not enough if it's misplaced. The object of our faith must be Christ himself if we ever hope to stand unashamed in the presence of God. Third, until we realize that we contribute nothing to our salvation, we cannot have assurance of that salvation. Our assurance does not depend on us, but on Christ. And frankly, I can't tell you how much trusting in Jesus Christ, really trusting him, is going to revolutionize your life. But until you really trust him, you're going to have moments of fear, and you'll always be second-guessing yourself. This kind of a a problem occurs especially for people who have grown up in a Christian home because their assumption is because I'm raised as a Christian, I should be a good person and I know some basic things of how I should live life and yet I've screwed up. And so I've got to add to my salvation somehow. The worst kind of people, believe it or not, are seminary students. You know, those who are training for the pastorate. That's the worst kind of person who should ever go into the pastorate. They're going there because their lives are messed up and they're trying to get right with God on the basis of, of their own works. And so we wrestle through those issues and those who get it, and most of them really do get it, they come to realize that they're sinners just like everybody else. In my own experience, I went through the master's program at Dallas Seminary. It's a four-year program. It took seven years of Greek and four years of Hebrew, squeezed into four years. Then I taught there for two years. Then I taught at another seminary for two years and then I got burned out on teaching. And for the next two years, I was living in Seattle, working for a gear shop, running parts all over the Seattle area for the aeronautics industry. And I was struggling with, does God really accept me? I kind of thought, gee whiz, why did I go through all this education? I mean, and I grew up in a Christian home, both sets of parents came from Christian homes, you know. Just great-looking pedigree, and yet my life was messed up. I had, there were sins in my life that I was ashamed of, and I thought, how can I possibly have done these things? For two years, every single day, I recited Romans 5.1 and Romans 8.1 to myself until I started to believe it. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Paul says in Romans 5.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. And every day, the enemy would say, that's not true. And every day, Scripture would say, yes, it is. Who are you going to believe? You and I face these things in a deeply personal way that you may not even be able to share with your spouse. But we all struggle with this and you need to understand that there's an enemy of the gospel who wants you to keep struggling with it but it's not our heavenly father if he has given us jesus christ will he not freely give us all things if he is not against us he's for us and he's for us because of christ fourth is this license to sin or is this freedom to live for god if he fully accepts me Does that mean I can put my faith in Christ and live like the devil? Well, Paul answers that in Romans 6. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Well, that question is really beyond the scope of my message this morning, but he will discuss this at length later on in Romans. And as Luther said, read Romans every day. Memorize it. It's a good book. Make it a commitment this month, this week, to read through Romans. You're going to see some things and say, wow. This is, I never knew this. How come I didn't know this stuff? It's been there, we just need to read the text. Not just chapter 6, but Paul's going to develop this in chapter 8 also. And as I said at the beginning, I would encourage you to read Romans and know it well. All the treasures of Scripture are unlocked in this book. The fifth and final principle, unless you and I are more concerned about God's reputation than our own, we will be of little use to him. Paul is a great example here. And we won't be concerned about God's glory until we are sure that He is our Father and we are His children. Until we are deeply and eternally grateful for what He has done for us, we won't make magnifying Him our highest priority. Let me close this in a word of prayer and then afterwards the offertory is going to take place and uh, I want to thank you again for the opportunity to come and, and speak to you this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, grant us the grace to pour contempt on all of our pride and to embrace the cross as the only route to your loving presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.